The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So if you've been joining us throughout this summer series, you know that we are highlighting the voices of women theologians throughout church history. And when I um, was invited to speak in this series, I knew right away that I wanted to cover Hildegard of Bingen. And I hold up this book because this is a book of all of her visions. And Hildegard um, is an ancient mystic. I had never heard of her before, but one of my seminary classes talked about her. And the wisdom of Hildegard never really left me. She left an impression on, on me for a number of reasons. One is that she was born in 1098. That was a long time ago. I don't do math, but that was a really long time ago. 1098, not 1998. 1098. And during that time, she preached all around medieval Europe. And I found that particularly inspiring because today we have arguments and debates on whether um, women can preach. And Hildegard in the year 1098 was preaching on a tour around medieval Europe. A little bit about Hildegard is um, at the age of three, she got an illness and she started to experience what she called these sacred visio or visions from God. And by the age of seven, she was given to a Catholic Benedictine monastery and she was to live there the rest of her life. Now there are a couple different accounts and um, theories as to why she was given away at such a young age the age of seven. One theory is that she really was this like mystic prodigy and that she was just plugged into God at such a young age and um, she belonged in a monastery with other nuns. And the other theory that I think is probably a little more likely is that Hildegard was a tithe. Because what you need to know is back then you would tithe your money, which was 10%, or more, but you would also tithe your children. And Hildegard was the 10th child in her family. So many believe that her family quite literally gave her away. And if you have children, you might know, yeah, by your 10th one, <laughs> one can go live somewhere else. And so they, some scholars believe she was a tithe who was given to the Catholic Church to pray for the family as well as the church because it was not uncommon to tithe children back then. Either way, what inspires me about Hildegard is that she had these sacred encounters with God at the age of three and seven that she hung on to and clung to for the rest of her life. I think oftentimes we read about theologians and they're heady and smart and sophisticated and the theology can be complicated and that's all good and fine. But Hildegard points us to this reality that our God doesn't have to be some complicated argument. We have access to him at the age of three, at the age of seven. 
And Jesus would argue that we might even have better access to him then because we are called as Christians to have a childlike faith. Not a childish faith, a childlike faith. A faith that just notices and believes and accepts that God is good. You know, when I was three, I was diagnosed with a blood disorder where my bone marrow shut down. And um, the doctors had told my parents that they thought it was either aplastic anemia or leukemia. And what happened was it was actually mono and another virus that shut down my platelets and my blood wouldn't clot. And it took uh, several weeks and months for them to come to a diagnosis and figure out what was going on. I received um, several blood transfusions, one emergency one from a stranger and the rest were from my father because he was a perfect match for my blood type. And um, I was three years old. I remember a couple things. I remember a get well party at my preschool. I remember watching Lady and the Tramp in my hospital bed. But my mom has this other memory that I don't remember. And she says that I told her one of the first times I saw my mom cry that Jesus said I was gonna be okay. And honestly, I'm pretty positive I lied and just told her that so she'd stop crying. (laughs) I don't remember Jesus coming to my bedside and talking to me. I wish I did, but I don't. But what I do know is that I had a faith at that age and this unshakable belief about who God was. A faith that I often admire today and long to return to. And that's the invitation of Hildegard. To live not into this complex ideologies and um, making the Bible more complicated or our faith rather more complicated than it has to be. But it's a return to this intrinsic belief that maybe we felt before sometime in our lives or in our bodies that God is good. Hildegard went on to not only preach around Europe, but she also um, was a doctor. She was a holistic medicine woman. She was a composer. She wrote music and she sung hymns. She was a painter. She was a preacher, a theologian. She wore so many identities. And I tell you right now, during this phase of motherhood for me, I find Hildegard particularly inspiring because she is a reminder to me that all of us women and men and people, we all are so many things. And oftentimes society will tell us we're one thing, but the reality is, is that we are invited to live fully into multiple identities as Christian people. In one of Hildegard's visions, again, there's a whole book of them. You can buy it on Amazon. But in one of her visions, vision 58, Hildegard wrote, the soul by reaching an agreement with the body flies up into the heavens like a bird in the air. Just as a bird cannot fly without atmosphere, our body too is kept in motion by the soul and not by itself. She wrote this vision along with many others. 
that pointed to this idea that our bodies and our souls were actually integrated. Now, I loved how uh, Dr. Ruth Lopez's sermon a couple weeks ago talked about how we can become obsessed with the soul and saving the Christian soul, but we also have to take into account reality today and the bodies that are living today. And what Hildegard does is she integrates the body with the soul. And while this seems even relevant today, what you need to know is that there's actually a word in ancient Hebrew called nephesh. And nephesh is translated in the Bible as the word soul. So when you read the word soul in the Bible, there's a good chance the Hebrew word that that was translated from is nephesh. And like all language translations, they're never perfect, right? Spanish has some words that don't translate perfectly in English. Well, I believe this is also true for the word nephesh because lots of scholars and theologians believe that the word nephesh, a better translation is actually soul body. Because in ancient Hebrew, they had this understanding that the body and soul interacted with each other and it was not something as separate as we often talk about. Instead, we are people living in soul bodies. I find this particularly helpful for a number of reasons. One is that it seems kind of obvious. In Christianity, we are the only religion where our God comes to us in a body. We have a God that literally says, you know, beliefs are great, but we have to embody them. And I'm gonna show you what that looks like, not tell you, not preach to you, not make you read something, but I'm gonna send a person to show you what it looks like to embody a soul perfectly. I love that about Christianity. I also believe that this idea of soul body can be so healing. As we highlight women during this summer series, um, I think about some of my own issues that I've had growing up with my body. I wish that this soul body theology could have been lived more fully when I was a teenager and even in my 20s. I've mentioned this before, but throughout my 20s and started when I was about 15, I started to develop a binge eating disorder where I would not eat all day. Then when everyone would go to bed, I would binge at night on whatever food I could find. I'd throw food away, I'd eat it back out of the trash. I remember eating frozen waffles I just did insane things with food. And as a way to punish myself for these binges, I would wake up early and go on these grueling runs, just run for miles and miles and miles. I remember I had three stress fractures within a short period of time. And the doctor was like, what are you doing? How are your bones breaking? I didn't tell him the truth. I was running out of punishment, out of self-hatred for this behavior that I couldn't understand. 
And throughout my healing journey to heal that part of myself, a lot of it has been on embodiment work. I'm paying attention to my body. It sounds simple. It's something that I think three-year-old Erica probably knew. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're full, you stop. You have three meals, you eat throughout the day. Like basic things became revolutionary to me as I worked on my own embodiment work. But I tell you, there is something sacred. There's something important about living in a body and paying attention to what's going on inside of it. And I think that as we get older and we have our own various kinds of traumas that we disassociate from our bodies more than we probably even know. And part of what it means to be human and what it means to live an embodied spiritual life means paying attention to what's in here. Noticing that Yahweh breath. One psalm that I love in scripture is Psalm 34, 8. And it's simple. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't say, here are 18 steps to discover just how good the Lord is. It doesn't say, read my 29-page dissertation on why indeed God is good. It says, taste and see the truth. God is good. When I watch my son eat a freezy pop, I know he knows God is good. In fact, before it's even done, he's going more, more. When Chris, our pastor, Pastor Chris, um, eats queso, he tastes and sees that the Lord is good. I don't know what food does it for you, but there is evidence of God everywhere. But we have to be paying attention to notice. And a story from the Bible that invites us to live an embodied spirituality is one you might not necessarily think is about embodiment, but it is, is the story of the Good Samaritan. So we're gonna read that story today. Before we read it, I'm gonna give you a little um, sneak peek preview on this really simple theology in this story. The story tells us, basically, if you wanna be a good Christian, you have to do two things. You have to love God with your entire body, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, all your heart. And then you have to love your neighbors that same way. It's that simple. It's annoyingly simple. Doesn't mean it's easy, especially when our neighbors are our enemies, but it's simple. And so the story begins with a religious scholar trying to um, trick Jesus. And he says, just, as, just then, a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures tried to trap Jesus. The scholar said, teacher, what must I do to experience eternal life? Jesus, answering with a question, says, what is written in the Hebrew scriptures? How do you interpret their answer to your question? So Jesus does what he always does, right? When people are trying to trick him and ask him a complicated question, he never answers it. He responds with a question or a story. This time he responds with another question. He says, you tell me what that means. The scholar said, um, you shall love. 
Love the eternal one, your God, with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So beginning of the Good Samaritan story, the scholars saying, Jesus, what does it mean to be good? And, and he answers, and Jesus responds, your answer is perfect. You're correct. Follow these commands and you will live. Now right there, if that was me, I would be satisfied. If Jesus said, you tell me what it means to be a good person, and then Jesus responds, perfect, your answer is correct. I think the story should be over right there. But the scholar was trying to trick Jesus, and he didn't like that this was too easy. So he was frustrated by this response, and he was hoping to make himself appear smarter than Jesus. Have any of you seen that on social media, or maybe at your dinner table, where you're angry because you just want to appear smarter, and you're not? I have. The scholar responds, ah, but who is my neighbor? Jesus responds to that question with the story of the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan story is all a response to the simple question, who is your neighbor? Jesus responds, this fellow was traveling down to Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers mugged him. They took his clothes, beat him to a pulp, and left him naked and bleeding in critical condition. By chance, a priest was going down the same road. And when he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed by. Then a Levite who was on his way to assist in the temple also came and saw the victim lying there. And he too kept his distance. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. When he saw the fellow, he felt compassion for him. The Samaritan went over to him, stopping the bleeding, applied some first aid, and put the poor fellow on his donkey. He brought the man to an inn and cared for him through the night. The next day, the Samaritan took out some money, two wages, two days wages to be exact, and paid the innkeeper, saying, please take care of this fellow. And if this isn't enough, I'll repay you next time I pass through. Which of these proved himself a neighbor to the man who had been mugged by the robbers? So Jesus asked this question. The scholar responds, the one who showed mercy to him. Jesus replies, well then, go and behave like that Samaritan. Now, to this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus basically tells the three men walk into a bar joke. He's like, okay, um... Who's your neighbor? Three guys walk into a bar. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Who do you think helps the guy that's hurting? And the punchline is, oh, the Samaritan does, because he's the one everybody hates. What you need to know about this story is that Samaritans were despised. In fact, compared to that scholar, if you can picture a theological ideological and political opposite to the scholar, it would be the Samaritans. And when asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers, your neighbor is the one that you can't stand. I'm asking you to see good in your enemies. 
And that kind of theology is radically Christian. This whole love your enemy business, I find it extremely annoying. But we are called to be a people that see good in the people we cannot stand. And the story invites us to see good even within the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a group that that scholar could not stand. And so the story of the Good Samaritan really asks us, love your God with all your soul, all your mind, all your heart, your entire being, and love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, sometimes your neighbor is your enemy. That's the theology wrapped up in a bow. It's a hard theology to live out. And what does it look like to love God with our entire body? I think that question is different for each of us. I'm not sure I have the answers for your unique circumstances, or I know I don't. I'm still figuring out mine. But one thing I know is that in my life, numbing has never worked well. Abusing food, social media, caffeine, you name it, whatever your drug of choice is. Whenever I start to heavily abuse things to numb out, there's a consequence. I think of my husband who, um, as some of you know, played football for a number of years. And there'd come this point post-surgery and he had many surgeries over the years. And there'd come this point about 12 hours where he'd be discharged from the hospital and I'd go in and get the instructions from the surgeon. And about 12 hours later would be when the nerve block would wear off. And whether it was his shoulder or his knee, you know, that would be when the pain just clicked in. And there was one time in Denver when the nerve block wore off and he had just gotten shoulder surgery and they had to reattach his bicep tendon to the outside of the ball and socket joint. And it was a painful recovery. And I remember him being in excruciating pain. And I thought, this is dumb. Let's just go back and get another nerve block. And the doctor told us something. He said, pain is necessary right now. Because if we just keep blocking the pain, it's never going to heal. You know, the pain is telling you that you can't just go start doing things with your arm. It's telling you what, what angles are safe right now for healing. And I think the same is true for all of us. When we numb, when we don't feel the pain in our bodies, when we disassociate, we also block the healing so the story asks us to feel what's inside of our own bodies, and that includes joy. But it also, perhaps more importantly, calls us to love the entire body of our neighbors. Not just the soul, as Ruth talked about, but the real bodies here, today, and now. And I like to fancy myself in this story as somebody who would stop. I'm sure we all do. We read the Good Samaritan and we think, I would have stopped and helped that man that was bleeding out. I would have. 
But the truth is, is it's not always as something as, as obvious as a bleeding body on the side of the road. We are bypassing the pain of others every day. There was a study by the CDC and um, it's been proven now that the pain of black Americans are not believed as much in the hospital. So they're actually treated differently, not given the same amount of anesthetic. Part of being a good Samaritan is believing the pain of others. And then also acting on that pain. Because in the same study with the CDC, black Americans were found to be less likely to receive proper treatment when reporting pain in their bodies, and even when controlling for income, education, and prenatal care, black women die in childbirth three to four times the rate of white women. Black babies die at double the rate of white babies. We're reminded in these statistics, in this science and truth, that sometimes walking by the pain of others, it doesn't look like someone on the side of a road, but it looks like evil hiding in systems. Systems that make us feel superior and like we're doing the right thing when the numbers are showing otherwise. There is real suffering in the world. And our job, according to the story of the Good Samaritan, is to see the pain, believe it, and do something about it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 reminds us that we are all one body. It says, just as the body is one whole, made up of many different parts, and all different parts comprise the one body, so it is with the anointed one. We were all ceremonially washed through baptism together into one body by one spirit. I love this language of us all being one body because I don't think you can do this work in isolation. I don't think you can just um, be embodied yourself or just care about a church body. The two have to go together. There's a tension between caring and treating and loving yourself and then loving your neighbors as yourself. You can't do one without the other. Perhaps Maya Angelou said it more brilliantly, she put it this way, the truth is no one of us can be free until everybody's free. Until every body is free. And so Ecclesia, I believe that's our invitation to see our liberation as something that we deserve inside of our own bodies, but also as intrinsically connected to the larger body of Christ. Because one thing we know from the story of the Good Samaritan, from the visions of Hildegard, is that everything belongs together. And we are not as separate as we often feel. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.